Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. On today's podcast, I'm going to be talking with this year's recipient of the Carnot Prize for Distinguished Contributions in Energy Policy. This year's prize, which is the eighth to be awarded by the Climate Center, goes to Ramon mendez Galen, who, from 2008 to 2015, served as Director of Energy for Uruguay. By the end of his term, Uruguay's electricity sector had been fundamentally transformed by Mendez's plan to achieve energy independence through a nearly complete transition to renewable power. By 2015, Uruguay generated fully 98% of its electricity from renewable sources, marking a dramatic shift for a country that had previously grown increasingly dependent on oil imports and whose economy had been shaken by the volatility of fossil fuel markets. Joining us on today's podcast is Noah Gallagher-Shannon, a journalist whose recent New York Times Magazine article on Uruguay's energy transition highlighted Ghislaine's role in seeing that transition through. On the podcast, we'll explore the unique set of circumstances that led to Uruguay's energy crisis early this century and the innovative policies that delivered energy security. We'll also discuss Ghislaine's current work to help other countries in their own transitions to clean energy, and we'll explore the extent to which Uruguay, with its unique set of resources, might serve as a model for other countries. Ramon and Noah, welcome to the podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So, Ramon, welcome to the Climate Center. And again, congratulations on receiving the Carnot Prize. Thank you so much. I'm really excited. I, I never imagined that. You know, I, I'm, I'm a scientist as a as a background, and but I was a particle physicist. Nothing to do with energy, and so I never imagined to receive to be in just prestigious list of colleagues of women and men, uh, in order to be, I mean, considered for a, this kind of award from a prestigious university as University of Pennsylvania. Well, we're very honored to have you here. So you were Uruguay's Director of Energy from 2008 to 2015. Yeah, during two administrations, in fact. Two administrations. And following that, you served as Uruguay's National Director of Climate Change and as Montevideo's Director of Planning. Now you run an NGO that seeks to apply your experiences in planning Uruguay's energy transition to additional countries. Can you introduce us to that NGO, your current work? Yeah, it's a foundation, in fact, that mm-hmm. we are created with a, a lot of, a bunch of friends, first of all, mm-hmm. with a lot of experience in, in, in public policies, uh, transitions, public policies. And we are working in all the whole region, not only in the region, also in, in Europe and, and other, even working sometimes here in the States, but mainly in Latin America in order to help countries to make their own uh, transition journey working either with governments and private sector, also with other NGOs and other with international organizations. And our role is to make things happen. And so we, we are taken as, uh, as an example, as a model for which what we did in Uruguay. But in fact, we're trying to focus on what is going on in these particular uh, circumstances in every country, with, because every country has to define its own transition journey. It's interesting. The name is Association Ivy, if I pronounce that correctly. And Ivy has got a special meaning. Is that right? Yeah, because it, but, but this is a difficulty because it's not the meaning that you think about because it's not Ivy. It's 
Ivi. Ivi is a Guaranese name. The Guaranese were the people that lived in, in, in my region before the Spanish came. And so in Guarani, Ivi means the beautiful land, the promised land, the land. It was, it was a myth. It was, it was a kind of, of figuring out what could a better world be for them. So this is why we, we took this name, because in order to think that this is, this is something we have to create, we have to create a new economy, we have to create a, a new way of developing. And, and this transition process, this pathway is the one we're guided by this Ivy myth of a beautiful land that is waiting for us. And Noah, I want to introduce you as well. You're the author of a New York Times Magazine article on Uruguay's energy transition. For those who want to look it up, it's called What Does Sustainable Living Look Like? Maybe Uruguay. When did you find out about Uruguay and the energy transition in Ramon's stories? I found out in about 2020, 2021. I was thinking about uh, some stories with my editor. I've written a lot on the effects of climate change, on massive thunderstorms in South America and corporate private security in the age of natural disasters and um, communities losing their groundwater. And I realized I, I didn't know a lot about the other side of the climate change story, which is about solutions. And at the same time, my wife and I were moving from New York to Colorado and in the process of kind of condensing our life and moving, we were thinking a lot more about our impact and what kind of life we wanted to build. So I was thinking about these kind of big existential questions. And my editor asked me a, a pretty simple question, which was, are there places in the world living right now the way that most of us need to live in the future? And it was a simple question, but it hit a lot of complex answers because it was an imaginative one too. It didn't necessarily ask, you know, what is the solution to climate change in a monolithic way, but just are there places out there that you know, proposed path forward that we hadn't yet seen or experienced. And so I kind of set off and did some research, talked to some different sources, read as much as I could. And there were the, kind of the, the usual suspects, you know, the, the northern social democracies in Europe that I feel like we've all read. The Denmarks of the world. Yeah. Denmarks of the world that we've all thought about and we can kind of picture in our head with a kind of uh, sleek technocratic air or something. And so I just wanted to think about unusual places, somewhere that most people hadn't thought of. And I landed on Uruguay for a few different reasons. One was that I realized I just didn't know anything about it. Uh, the other was that it, it, it seemed almost like a Goldilocks of countries where its per capita footprint seemed small enough that it was near that, you know, two tons per person that we need to get to if we're going to limit the world to 1.5 or 2 degrees warming. Um, so it seemed within sight of that, but it also had a, a good enough standard of living that it didn't feel like we were asking, you know, the global north to somehow uh, retreat in its standard of living. So I thought that was really interesting. And then the more that I read, the more that I saw that they had accomplished this pretty incredible energy transition from using a lot of thermal power to using almost 100% renewable. And a couple things about it grabbed me. One was that they had done it relatively quickly. Uh, and we're talking about a decade or so, which just, you know, in an American time frame just seemed insane. And the other was that there were kind of an unlikely cast of characters that had helped uh, accomplish this. You know, one of them was Jose Mujica, who was a former 
gorilla turned president in the country. So uh, as a writer, I'm, I'm thinking about characters and I'm like, that's a great character to explore. Um, and then of course there was Ramon who, the more that I read about and heard about your background in theoretical physics and working on the Big Bang, I'm thinking, well, how did this guy wind up going from doing kind of blackboard math about the biggest problems in the universe to trying to solve an energy problem in a very small country? So that was just, you know, once I had surveyed that landscape, I was like, this is a great story. You know, for a moment, I'd like to turn over the conversation to the two of you because you recounted the story of Uruguay and the energy transition so beautifully in that New York Times Magazine piece. And I wonder if you could just jump in a little bit the questions you might have here on the key parts of that transition. What were the key components of the transition itself? Yeah. Well, I wonder if we might jump like a step back further with Ramon and just uh, talk about what kind of work you were doing prior to the energy crisis in Uruguay, what problems you were thinking about in physics, and then kind of how that eventually brought you into politics, brought you into civil service, because I think that's an interesting journey. Yeah, it absolutely nothing to do with what I'm doing. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> right, nothing to do. I was a scientist, yes, I was a university professor, worked in many countries and many prestigious universities, worked with a lot of very creative and very fantastic people. But I was working in what happened, what was going on in the first microsecond after Big Bang. So what <laughs> was was the shape of the universe, which was absolutely different as we used to have right now. The physics was quite different. And there were some symmetries that we are now trying to understand. Hmm. So I was a theoretical physicist working with, of course, with data, but just doing models. And so trying to understand how things quite different from the one we have right now worked on in that, th those moments, because that helped us understand a lot of things are present, of course, but just theoretical physics, nothing to do with reality. My only reality was my students, when I used <laughs> to talk and deliver, I mean, all, all my, my courses, but this was my main job. Mm. And enjoy it very much. Yeah. Because you know when you are, you, when you are in, the, in the academy, you have a lot of freedom. You have a lot of freedom to think whatever you want, to say whatever you want, to have a mistake, and then to begin once again with even stronger. <laughs> but uh, have a lot of freedom and enjoy that very much. So take us back to maybe uh, the mid-2000s when the energy crisis really begins in Uruguay and maybe just kind of characterize that for us because I know that was yeah. that was the kind of moment that catalyzed a lot of this change. Yeah, absolutely. And when you are really in big problem, perhaps have a lot of opportunities. This crisis gives us opportunities, as we used to say. In fact, we're in, in a perfect storm because um, fortunately we're, our economy was increasing very rapidly. Mm. We were succeeding to decrease poverty at extraordinary rates, really, really, because of public policies. We were succeeding in doing that. But at the same time, the energy consumption was increasing dramatically. And we are a small country, we are the second smallest country in, in South America. We have only 3.4 million inhabitants. And we were dependent on fossil fuel imports because we don't have coal, we don't have natural gas, we don't have oil. And we have already used our large rivers to install hydropower plants. So we needed to import uh, oil or natural gas or whatever. And, and our two big neighbors, Argentina and Brazil, were have their own difficulties to, to cope with their own domestic demand. So mm. it was not easy for them to assist us. So we're in really deep difficulties with the demand growing and with no having how to do in order to, to cope with that. And we're still, we are beginning to have, um, I wouldn't say blackout, but at least uh, electricity shortage. We were really experiencing strong difficulties. 
So once you're brought into civil service, I know that there was perhaps some plan to move to atomic energy since that was yeah. at least a little closer yeah. to your expertise. Why didn't that work out? Well, f first of all, just one step backward. The, the point is in that particular moment, I got an assistant to, to get involved in the Soviet for Solution. Mm. I, I was a particle physicist, okay, but I was part of Uruguayan society. So I began to study the energy issue. And of course, the I mean, many people were talking about nuclear energy because the, the people were looking for the solution. Mm. And in fact, in, in energy, as, as I began to understand more and more, there's not a solution. There are a complementation of solutions. So we have to look at the point in a, in a overall way because you have a lot of dimensions. Of course, you have the economic and the technological dimensions, but you also the environmental dimension, the social dimension, the geopolitical dimensions, the cultural dimension, even the ethical dimension. Everything is concerns the energy issue. So I began to study all of that. And as I was a kind of nuclear physicist, as a particle physicist, so everybody was looking at me and saying, well, well am I going to go into nuclear? <laughs> what, what can you do for that? It would have made sense, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it makes sense. But I began to study the issue and I realized that this was not the best solution for us hmm. because we still having to continue importing technology, importing uranium. We don't have uranium either. And, and we have a better solution. We had a better solution. We was just to believe in our own resources, our wind, our sun, our water, our, our biomass waste. This depends on us. We didn't need to depend on important uh, fossil fuels or in, in the energy markets or in the energy fluctuation of energy commodity prices. So there was the best solution. So yeah. that's why I, I written, I written my thoughts. And without realizing, I, realized, I ended up with a complete, comprehensive proposal based on a just energy transition to renewable energies. And for my surprise, this was my surprise, one day I received a phone call and the president wanted me to implement that crazy idea. <laughs> and I did even something craziest. I accepted. <laughs> so I changed dramatically my life from the academic point of view with all this freedom you have and going through has been the political responsible for our national energy agency had me a lot of of uh, freedom yeah <laughs> when you are in a, in a political responsibility uh, i mean you cannot say whatever you want you cannot even think whatever you want because your 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 thought could be <laughs> overheard mm -hmm. so uh, it was a dramatic change in my life but i enjoyed much 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 more than my previous one because when you have a political responsibility you can change people's life mm. and this is what i try to do yeah I thought one of the most interesting things I discovered when I went down to Uruguay and visited with you and others is that on paper, when you look at a transition that goes from using fossil fuels to using almost 100% renewable energy, you expect that there's been climate marches in the street or that the government that's taking over is, is pushing a kind of green revolution. When I got there and talked to people, uh, that didn't seem to be the case. It seemed to be that there were many different factors driving this um, transition. And in fact, you know, when I talked to people and said, what was the green revolution like? Um, a lot of the Latin Americans were like, well, there wasn't really a revolution in the Latin American sense. It was that we were worried about sovereignty. We were worried about the future. We were worried about our economy being yoked to commodity prices that were 
you know, being affected by global wars that were very far away from Uruguay. So I thought that was one of the most unexpected and unlikely things about the transition that you guys went through. I want to chime in on that. One of the things that's so interesting as well, as you just alluded to, is that it's an energy transition, but it's an energy transition reliant upon clean resources. That's what's so unique about it. You're looking for security, right? Energy security, but renewables provide that. Yeah, renewables provided, and 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 you become independent of all these kind of wars or other geopolitical events. And this is fantastic. Ask me what was the impact on the electricity sector in Uruguay after the, this tragic war in Europe? Zero. We have no impact mm. because we do not depend on energy commodities. This is fantastic, because it, it's even more fantastic for a small country, for a small economy. Because as a small economy, you are, you are much more dependent on what's going on all over the world. Yeah. But doing this. You become independent or more and more independent all of that. And this was very important. Well, I, I want to ask you about some of the specifics. So we talked about the switch to renewables, okay? But as I understand, central to the development and to the transition was actually development of contracts for clean energy with private suppliers. And that was a bit of a shift, right? Because the state-owned electric utility, UTE, had owned all the generation or most of it up until that point. So it was a shift there. But talk to us about the, the actual plan for how the, the renewables were brought on. Yes, one of the difficulties was we need a lot of money in order to, to make the, all the investment. In total, we received $6 billion investment in only five years. Mm. If you make a comparison to the United States, this is 12% of our GDP. $6 billion, we have a $50 billion size economy. So $6 billion is 12% of that. Imagine that. You will see how many zeros it has this figure in the United States. There are three, we're talking about trillions of dollars. So this was impossible to be done just by government, just by with public funds. Even if we have access to markets, to the IMF or the IADB, a lot of banks, but it's, it's a huge impact. So we ran a public-private partnership strategy, uh, which was original, which was uh, disrupted in a way. And the point is that yes, there are, we made bidding processes to see which are the best private uh, investors that want to invest in generation in Uruguay. But after the electricity is generated, it goes to the public grid. So the energy itself is the good to be worried about. So this is the public good. And the public good is driven by the public utility. So there's a, a very original uh, private-public partnership. And this is, has been done through bidding processes and long-term contracts. Mm -hmm. So this long-term contracts is the best for everybody because for the private sector, you know how much money you're going to receive for the following 20 years. So you can reduce the risk in a very important manner. And for consumer, it's fantastic because you know what the price of electricity is going to be for the following 20 years. So it's, it's, it's the best world. And this is why it works. Something you emphasized in the article, Noah, and I want to ask you about, Ramon, that was so interesting, particularly interesting from an American perspective where energy is, is so politicized, climate is so politicized. Political compromise was part of this yeah. plan. You were able to achieve that. Tell us about the opposition, how much opposition there was, and what the compromise was about. First of all, the opposition. The point was that that time, 15 years ago, they didn't see me coming. Mm. So, in fact, there were not that much amount of opposition because things went one after the other. If you have, I used to say that if you have a, a recipient plenty of, of dirty water, you can do two things. Either you throw away all the dirty water and then you put 
clean water or you put clean water after clean water, drop after drop, at the end of the day, there's no more dirty water. And this is what we did. So they didn't see me coming. But on the other side, yes, having a long-term agreement between all political parties was fundamental. And this was the role, as you mentioned, of Jose Pepe Mujica. I, I've been serving two presidents. The second one was the fantastic Pepe Mujica. And when he asked me, when he, when he asked me to remain in office, he said, but Ramon, you have to make this policy to be a policy accepted by all political parties. So we negotiated with all political parties represented in parliament. We have four in Uruguay at that time. And we succeeded. Now we have six, but at that time we have four. And we succeeded to negotiate. We made some minor changes. And this was crucial because when you are going through long-term processes, we need to have a continuity of these processes. And this is perhaps the most important message I can mm. deliver. I mean, in order to make this kind of dramatic changes, you need agreements, you need political agreements, and you need to build a narrative, national narrative that sustains this process. And the good news is that nowadays, renewables are not just a solution for the global climate crisis. Renewables are also deliver important solution at the national level because we succeeded to sharply decrease our electricity production cost by almost half. Because nowadays, renewables are the cheapest option. Mm -hmm. So we created 50,000 new jobs. This is 3% of our national labor force. Again, if we make to make, to make a comparison with the United States, 3% of the labor force are several million new jobs creation. So forget about climate change for a while. For a while. Forget about that. Even if there were not climate change, renewables is the best solution right now yeah. because you do not depend on energy commodities. You just fix the price of electricity for long term. You just depend on your own uh, resources, of course. You are decreasing costs. You are creating jobs. It's fantastic. Here's a really interesting point that I ran across. So per the World Economic Forum's Global Competitiveness Index, Uruguay ranks first in Latin America in terms of the quality of electricity supply. And that's amazing. So you're relying upon renewables for the vast bulk of your generation. How do you balance those intermittent renewables in Uruguay? Well, this is perhaps the most important point because people used to say, and incredibly, they're still repeating right now that this is not possible to go beyond a certain limit of intermittent sources like solar and wind. And this is not true. We, we proved that it's not true. I mean, no one went to Uruguay. Everybody can go to Uruguay and see what is going, what is going for the last six years right now. Okay? So, yes, it is possible to manage intermittent sources. Of course, we have to run the system in a completely different way because in Uruguay, sun and wind are king. Everything is working to help sun and wind to work because, yes, there are individual intermittencies of these sources, but the complementarity between different sources allows us to build a robust system, which is as much robust, even more robust than it used to be before. Because before we were dependent on dry years, on El Nino phenomena, which is very important in South America. And now we still depend on that, but we're much less dependent. And the overcost that we used to have in those dry years, well, they went down dramatically. So what I want to say is that, yes, it is possible doing absolutely completely different things, but it is possible to run a system with a large amount of intermittencies. Uh, we have about 40% of electricity coming from wind, just wind. Wow. 
And so this is because, yes, the complementarity between sources make the job. Are there ways in which when you have a grid that's that reliant on a mix of renewables that you have to change your relationship between supply and demand? I mean, I'm thinking right now with the, the drought that's been going on in Uruguay, are there ways in which that makes uh, generation difficult or people have to change their usage based on the time of day or? No, 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 fortunately not. I mean, last year was the, the worst because we have a lot of rains, it was the worst in a century in wow. Uruguay, okay? So we didn't succeed to have 2% of fossil fuels in the grid, but we have seven. So it's, it's a lot. If you, if you compare seven to two, it's a lot. <laughs> but it's only seven. I mean, put it the other way. It's not 98% renewable. It's only 93% renewable, but right. it's already a lot. I mean, if, if we were all succeeded to make that more than 90% of renewable at any time, okay, well done. But yes, we are still dependent on El Nino phenomena, on dry years, and, and this makes a difference, but we succeeded to manage it, yes. And, and even though last year and the day before, the year before that, we succeeded to continue to export electricity to Argentina and Brazil. And this is an important amount of money we receive because of these exports. In 2021, we got 1% of our GDP just for exports of electricity surpluses to Argentina and Brazil. So. It works. And this is what I mean. <laughs> you know, I'd like to dive a little bit deeper. Yep. You'd mentioned hydro. Hydro is about a third of the installed capacity in, in Uruguay. The installed capacity is one third, yes. So when you have the drought conditions, how much are you reliant upon hydro for balancing the renewables at this point? Or is it simply the geographic diversity of the wind that allows you to, again, provide energy at any time? It's a small country, but even though it's enough to have diversity in wind and solar, that's for true. But when we have, don't have enough water in order to filter the variability, if you wish, the intermittency of sun and wind, we have to use fossil fuel plants. I mean, mm -hmm. this is not difficult. We have an insurance policy. This insurance policy continues to be fossil fuel plants. But the most important point is how you use those fossil fuel power plants. They have to be much more flexible. If you have, for example, let's say a nuclear energy plant, you cannot turn it down, everything that, that the one is going on. If you have a coal plant, it's the same. So what we have is gas turbines, engine power. You can turn it on in three minutes. And, we, and the important point is we have a knowledge of wind and solar and sun much better than we used to have before. I can tell you, with less than 20% error, in a week in advance, which is the amount of wind electricity and solar electricity we're going to have in the grid. So this is crucial in order to know how to dispatch different sources that you have. For sure, in order to do that, academics work for years to design a groundbreaking software to handle this intermittent energy dispatch. And uh, it, for, for years, really. And, and this, this energy dispatch is based on the probability of occurrence of different weather scenarios, based on both a century of historical data and weather forecasting. So this is crucial. That, that Once again, making an energy transition is not just adding wind and solar to your grid. It's not that that. It's, you have to make a lot of changes in how do you plan the system, in how do you operate the system, in the market model. We have to design a new market model because, as you were saying, Andy, I mean, Renewable energies are quite different. It's a quite different model than the traditional one in the power sector. So you're working with EV and you're looking to apply the lessons learned from Uruguay to energy transitions to help other countries with their energy transitions. And that's a, a critical question. Uruguay is very small. 
small electric grid relative to other countries, a different energy mix. It doesn't have its own substantial fossil fuel resources, a lot of wind, a lot of hydro, as you mentioned. How applicable are these lessons from Uruguay to the rest of Latin America and, and other places? And this really comes up in the context we hear so much about, and we mentioned it earlier in this context, Denmark. Denmark being this special case, but how applicable are its lessons elsewhere? Thank you for the question, because a lot of people are saying that Uruguay succeeded to do that because we're a small country. And nothing could be farther from the truth. Because in fact, for small countries, it's much more difficult. For a small country in the global south, it's difficult to make these kind of changes. Mm-hmm. In large economies, you have more, more people, more people with a lot of capacity. You have more money, you have more capacity to, to accept investment, to receive investment. You have local manufacturing. We didn't have local manufacturing. I tried to, to have local manufacturing of windmills in Uruguay, but if you're going to have o- only two gigawatt of, of wind, it's not enough. And that's critical because here in the United States, that manufacturing capacity is one of the political levers to get everybody behind renewables. And then you create a lot of jobs. So this is the kind of thing that you can do in large economies. It's much more simple to make these kinds of changes in large economy than in a small one. I think in large economies like ours too, though, there is increasingly political belligerence Absolutely. between opposition parties. And one thing I was fascinated by in Uruguay was hearing that you guys had a majority in government and you still kind of pressed pause to try to get cooperation from the opposition, which blows my mind as an American in this particular political environment. But then also talking to some of the opposition party members who basically complimented your plan and said, this is great. This is good for the country. This is the future for the country. And as an American, I'm sort of like waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, but, but, like, what's your but here? Yeah, but. The, the point is that we have to have a national narrative. And mm. this is what I'm working with Evie in, in a lot of countries. Every country has to have a long narrative. Why do we need renewables? Mm. Why do we need energy transition? And if there is a public acceptance of that, then if uh, there's a change in government and the new government doesn't want to continue what he did, he has to, do a lot of, has to give a lot of explanation because people want that. Because people know that it was a great job, that this will decrease the energy bill, because we're going to be less dependent on what's going on in Europe or in uh, Saudi. I mean, if you have a strong national narrative, building strong political agreements is much easier. And I think that we do have right now this, because yes, even I know that here in America, you have a lot of difference, political difference, even concerning the acceptance or not acceptance of climate change, once again. Renewables deliver the best solution at the national level. Forget for a while climate change. So I, I was guided by climate change. Mm. But even if, if it were not climate change, even though the, this is the best solution. Yeah, I wanted to ask a, a follow-up question on that because one thing that struck me about Uruguay was that you put this policy in place for a lot of different reasons. And usually, I feel like as Americans, we think that big policies are going to follow big social movements, right? There's going to be people marching in the street, and only then the government is going to react. But again, an opposite thing happened in Uruguay where the government made a very proactive decision, perhaps for sovereignty and geopolitical reasons, economic reasons. How do you then get people on board with the climate movement kind of after the fact almost? Well, I'm saying something politically incorrect. (laughs) I am not quite sure that there's a political movement sustaining the energy transition in Uruguay. Yeah. I mean, it works. Okay, that's fine. 
as a small country, perhaps we are proud of being first all over the world in something. It is something to make us proud. You know, in, in Uruguay, football, but soccer, what you used, what you yeah. call soccer in the United States, is the most popular sport. And in 1950, 70 years from now, we have been world champion. So we were still talking about that. <laughs> because we, 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 a small country, being first in something, something filled out of pride. So I think that this is an interesting point. And people said, okay, that's fine. I mean, this modern, this, this, this windmills turning around over there uh, in any, every, every place, this sounds modern. It happens that it was leading something, and this is good. But at the end of the day, the only point for people is just to have their bill, back, uh, the amount of the bill. And this is the most important point for people. I want to bring that point up because, as you point out in the article, Noah, there were some complaints that electricity prices have not fallen for yeah, consumers, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And and I used to say that this was the worst day in office when mm. my, where my colleagues from the Ministry of, of Economy, they said that not all the cost reduction we got was being translated to the bills because nowadays the public utility is a kind of ATM of the government. Mm. There's a revenue transference from the public utility to the government for all public policies. Okay, that, that's fine. And this is, this is for health, for education, that's fine. But this has, has not been translated everything to the bill. So people are complaining. I, I, I accept that. I agree with that. But it's not an energy decision. It was a, a overall economic decision of the country. And this is something that's hindering somehow, and some people are not that, that happy with the transition, but they said at the end of the day, there was a bill reduction of about 20%, but it could have been much more than that. Because once again, the production cost reduction was reduced to half of what it used to be. But this has not been translated to the bill. Only 20% of that was translated to the bill. So people are still complaining. I know there's something also which is extraordinary um, interesting in Uruguay, that there's also a poverty reduction and people is living better, so people is consuming more electricity. Mm -hmm. And as they're consuming more electricity, they're paying more. But it's not because the kilowatt hour is more expensive, it's because they are consuming more. So this is something also that has been used politically in a bad way. But uh, at the end of the day, once again, the only thing important for people is the, the bill. So the transition that we've been talking about is the transition of the electricity sector. Yeah. But there's also the broader economy and the broader use of energy, right? Yeah. I understand that Uruguay is now looking aggressively at hydrogen. Is that from wind as well? Wind and solar, yeah. In fact, well, going to hydrogen, I mean, we not only need to decarbonize the power mix, we need to decarbonize the, the transportation mix and, and indus industry mix when you produce for all the industry, also in uh, in buildings, and for that, not necessarily electricity is the solution. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, uh, hi, um, green hydrogen will be in ten years from now the best solution to get over uh, uh, fossil fuels. And yes, we are working on that for sure. Uruguay has the possibility using wind and solar to produce not only just uh, uh, green hydrogen but also e-methanol. In order to produce e-methanol, this is, for example, for ships, and also um, what is called the e kerosene for planes. You need not only wind and, and sun, but also you need what is called biogenic carbon, and this is produced by countries like Uruguay that has a lot of, of agri-industry. So you have CO2 that is produced 
from natural origins and, and not using fossil fuels. And this is something that we also have in abundance. So yes, we are in the run for the new transition, which will be based in, in green hydrogen. Is there anything you wanted to say to sum up in terms of your experiences with EV, optimistic, pessimistic path forward? Yeah, I just wanted to say that you don't have to think that because Uruguay is a small country, you cannot do it in elsewhere. Mm -hmm. You cannot say that, yes, because this guy have a lot of hydro, so it's much easier. Uh, yes, it's true. Having a lot of hydro is important. We have a lot, 40% of hydro. This is, this is important. But the most important thing is, is to have flexible systems. Mm -hmm. And for that, my message is that public policies are absolutely crucial. I mean, I mean, it's 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 a too big thing for market alone to make the to make the point. You need to have strong public policies. You have to build a whole transformative ecosystem in order for things to happen. Transition would not happen spontaneously, for sure. You have to guide that in order to happen. And but my message is, I am absolutely convinced that perhaps you, we won't get ninety-eight percent of renewable, but. To go in to no more than 20% of fossil fuel is something that we can do all over the world. And having less than 20% of fossil fuels would already make a thing. Ramon, thanks for talking it again. Congratulations on the Carnot Prize. It's really, really, first of all, a pleasure having been talking with you, meeting Noah again. It was a big, big pleasure. Thank you for inviting him. But most of that, thank you so much for Climate Center and the University of Pennsylvania to put him in this list where I have never imagined before to be. It's great to have you here. And Noah, thanks for talking. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Congratulations, Ramon. Today's guests have been Ramon Mendez-Galane, this year's recipient of the Carnot Prize, and journalist Noah Gallagher-Shannon. Visit the Climate Center website for our latest energy policy research and to sign up for in-person and virtual events. To keep up with the center, sign up for our monthly newsletter on our homepage. Our web address is kleinmanenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.